Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him up to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to Jesus, All these I will give to you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue our study in Matthew, we're going to examine the temptations of Christ and ask a few questions of this text. The first question is, how is Christ's temptation significant? Secondly, how is our struggle with temptation related? And finally, how is God's grace for temptation provided? So first, let's take a look at the significance of this. How is Christ's temptation significant? You know, the Word of God is for us, but it's not actually about us. It's very difficult for the modern reader to grasp because we are so accustomed to looking at absolutely everything and asking what it means to us. And that's appropriate and good. But that's actually when we're looking at the Word of God and we're examining Scripture and we're wanting the Word of God to speak to our hearts and our minds, we don't begin with, what does this verse mean to me? We begin with, what is the significance of this verse? What does this verse mean? What does this passage mean? And the Bible is actually not about us. It's about Christ. The Word of God, for those of you new to uh, Christian faith or exploring it today, on the cover of the Bible, it says, Holy Bible. Bible comes from the Greek, Biblia, which means library. So it's a holy library of 66 books that are all culminating in one story, converging in Christ. So the Word of God is actually about God. The Word of God is about His goal for humanity. It's for us. It's life-giving to us. It will revive you and renew you and heal you and literally transform you in glorious ways to flourish spirit, soul, and body as you are created before God to flourish. It will do all those things. But we don't begin with, what does this mean to me? We begin with, what does it mean? So we want to consider the significance of the temptation of Christ uh, because Matthew's recording these events in a significant order uh, as, as they are happening. And it's, it's teaching us some things and showing the original, original audience some things. His book begins with a genealogy to show how God has moved from millennia through world history, uh, through uh, the, the history of the people of God in Israel to get his grace to us. We see that uh, Jesus was born by supernatural means, and that reminds us of another child in the Old Testament that was born by supernatural means. 
not a virgin birth, but a womb that was dead. Sarah, far past the, uh, the age of childbearing. Sarah, Abraham and Sarah have a child, the son of promise. Isaac and Jesus Christ, born of a virgin birth, is the true son of promise. After you've got this supernatural birth, you keep on moving and you find that uh, Jesus Christ was saved from the death of a tyrant king. Herod, who wants him dead? And this reminds us of a child that was saved from a tyrant king in the Old Testament. Moses, as his life was under threat of uh, the Pharaoh. So there's all of these very, very intentional links and orderings that God himself is orchestrating through Jesus Christ to show that original audience and now us by design. There's something very intentional happening here. Very, very supernatural that's been aligned for millennia that's all unfolding. After we get the, uh, the escape from the tyrant king, we also see this connection of coming out of Egypt. Whereas, you know, the people of Israel were saved out of slavery and death out of Egypt. And Mary and Joseph flee and go to Egypt because of the threat on the life of the Christ child. And then when they are uh, safe from that threat, they come out of Egypt. So here you have this... Uh, parallel here and after they come out after jesus comes out of egypt we picked up the story last week where he passes through water right reminding us of yeshua in the old testament joshua yeshua the name of christ passing through the jordan river the beginning of the conquest of the promised land is the beginning of christ's conquest bringing us and all people all humanity into the true promised land which is salvation and life unto god which of course includes the nature of israel but is every nation which is not speaking to a small patch of land in the Middle East, but the large patch of land called the earth. This is God's plan of redemption that's all being unfolded, these glorious perils. After the, the passing through of water, you're also reminded of the passing through of water, of course, at the Red Sea, where after they pass through the Red Sea, they're led into the wilderness, where they fail miserably in the wilderness. And here now we pick up the story where Jesus Christ is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But where all people... All the people of God through all time failed in the wilderness. Christ will be faithful in the wilderness for us. Them 40 years, Christ 40 days. This unmistakable theme of exile and homecoming. This is all ultimately, ultimately being brought about. All of these parallels on purpose. For us to just sort of sit in the gravity of what this all means. Because if we just speed past who Jesus was. To think about the kind of people we want to be. Not that that's wrong. If we speed past what Jesus did. To just think about temptation in terms of like, what am I going to do this week? I think we miss some significant things because the heart change that you and I need to overcome temptation is not sparked by an increase in activity and effort. All the wisdom literature that we studied all summer shows us that the spark is in the awe of God, the love of God, the wonder of God. The bigness of God. And when our hearts are captivated with something so grand as a God who has orchestrated the move through humanity for millennia through world history, when we just sit in the gravitas of who He is and what He has done, and we allow that to slowly seep into our hearts, that is where the power is, which is where, of course, the sermon will head into application the power to overcome temptation, to live lives of true flourishing as, as the people of God. Renewal flows from awe. Wisdom is a byproduct of worship. These things are true, continually revealed throughout Scripture. And so this is why we want this 
incarnation of Jesus Christ to slowly and gradually sink into us. Desire of worship grows in us. That strength to overcome temptation will be present in us. And so Matthew's record is given in this very intentional order here. We're going to look at the first temptation today. How he's, he's led in uh, the wilderness to feed himself. And Jesus had to be led in by the Spirit. Otherwise he wouldn't have been tempted on his own. Maybe you've been in a restaurant and the, and the, the, and the one serving at the table will say, use the phrase, they'll say, can I tempt you with the dessert menu? Excellent phrase, right? It's a great phrase. Can I tempt you with the dessert menu? And when, when that's said to me, I always think to myself, well, that depends. Because if this dessert menu has chocolate on it, yes, <laughs> you can tempt me. It doesn't matter how full I am. I always have room for chocolate. Uh, I'm without question tempted by chocolate. No doubt about it. Just find out how much chocolate will kill a human being, dial it back a little, and give me that much. That's how much chocolate I want. I can be tempted. But if I look down the menu and it is like weird sorbets, I'm like, sorbet is trying to be good. You're not good. Stop trying to be good. Why is this on a dessert? This isn't even dessert. Get away from me, Satan. Right? That's how it feels. And so, temptation... Uh, as Matthew records, it, it presents it in this, this desire to deal with the rumbling. How do I feed this rumbling? How do I quench the rumbling? How do I satisfy the insatiable hunger, this thing that just doesn't seem to be going away? And so Jesus had to be led away because you and I, we have temptations that are outside us, right? Can I tempt you with a dessert menu? But the truth of the matter is the only reason that tempts me is because there is actually a, a desire that's rolling around inside us. That's why it works. Jesus Christ, of course, was tempted in the wilderness from things outside him because there is no wayward desires inside him. So the significance of Christ's temptation reveals, I think, some good things about the doctrine of justification, which is that you and I are declared righteous before God, even though the day-to-day reality is we struggle with sin. And so some of the theologians in the time of the Reformation would say, would use the Latin phrase, simuliusis et peccator, which means which means uh, simultaneously justified and sinner. A sinner in my day-to-day experience, but justified before God irreversibly. And Christ had nothing inside him that was wayward, so the Spirit leads him out. So there's a lot of significance here. The significance of the temptation of Christ is that God is trying to move redemption through history, and right here and right now, the tempter is trying to thwart redemptive history. Let's move on to the second thing. How is our struggle with temptation related to all of this? You see, in verse 1, it says that uh, the devil comes to tempt him. And the, the, in the Greek, devil is diabolos. And diabolos is, was a common phrase we used all the time. It didn't mean horns and pitchforks. And when we imagine the devil, the things that we imagine. Diabolos in the culture would be used to describe someone who was criticizing with the intent to separate. If you were sort of a conniving person... And you were sort of meddling in the office all the time. And there was, there was a way of speaking and a way of relating to people that was sort of had this seething, cynical, insidious criticism with the intent of separating relationships. You are diabolus. So it says that the, the, the diabolus comes to tempt uh, Jesus and uh, with this desire to separate. And of course, this had separation being the Trinity itself. It's a bold task. To separate the love of the Son from the love of the Father. How can I, how can the Diabolus create a separation? 
This, of course, is unoriginal. This should remind some of you of Genesis 3. This is the original sin. This is the temptation that's been rolling since the beginning of time. How do I separate you from the love of God? How do I somehow convey to you that God is not for you, enough for you, he can't fulfill you? How do I, how do I get you to believe that you are better off with that relationship severed? You will flourish apart from God if you can somehow just operate in independence of God. So what's going on here. The Diabolus comes to do this. Verse 3 says test. And the test, uh, I mean, or tempting, it says, the interesting word, uh, the image, is to uh, test something to the point of breaking. This is the essence of the Greek word. For those of you who fish, you can get different kinds of fishing line, right? Five-pound test, 10-pound test, 20-pound test. They call it test. Hey, what's this line tested for? In other words, at what point will this thing snap? So the work of the Diabolus from the beginning has always been, how can I put enough tension on this rumbling inside you so that eventually you snap? And that snapping looks like this living in independence from God and in that moment of sin or in a in life of habitual sin, sort of live in independence from God. This is all, of course, what's, what's going on uh, in this moment. And, and you and I have all had times when we've snapped, so we can reflect on times when, even this past week, we've given into temptation in various ways. We snapped. And when that happens, it's humbling, because quite often we think we're stronger than we are. It's humbling and it's embarrassing, uh, because we kind of feel like I'd never, I can't believe I would snap like that. But under the right test, we all sort of snap like cobwebs. If we're living in this sort of constant indifference to our union with God and we're not really moved by the majesty of God. He's not really a big deal. So everything is about just rolling the sleeves up and trying a little harder. And that's, that's an impossibly difficult way to live a flourishing Christian life. There's, it's got to be motivated by joy and wonder and awe. And so the good news, of course, is that Jesus never snapped. You and I are united by grace and faith to the one who never snapped. And we've been given the righteous record of the one who never snaps. And we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that increasingly over the course of our lives... Less and less and less, we snap. None of us are going to, of course, achieve this perfect, divine, uh, glorious holiness and perfection that equals Christ. But we are called to have a desire to walk in his ways and, and, and uh, image him and reflect him in the earth. So the devil comes and tests Jesus when Jesus is physically worn out. He's physically worn out. He's down. He's, he's uh, been fasting for 40 days. And the goal is to sort of get Jesus to stop looking to the Father for strength and instead use his own power in a trivial way for self-gratification. Consider the parallel in our lives. The devil comes to us when we're worn down physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We're worn down. That's prime time to get us in that moment to gratify the rumbling (laughs) desires and appetites. How can I use my power in this moment for trivial self-gratification. How can I do it? And what do I mean by trivial gratification? Jesus is God incarnate. Through Jesus, the whole universe was spun into existence. And right now he's being tempted to turn a rock into a muffin. So that's a trivial use of his power. But you and I are created in the image of God. And every time we use our sin to do something that is unloving, unkind, unwise. Something that is contrary to the way in which you and I were designed. So that the way in which we're relating to our neighbors our city, 
is with a, with a curved in selfishness. It's a trivial use of power. Because on the surface, you could look at it and say, well, what's the big deal? He, hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Use your, use your, use your power for uh, get something to eat. How could that possibly be a big deal? The big deal is, and Jesus knows this, his power is not for self-gratification. His power is to lay his life down and live in selflessness. So in essence, this is what's going on. The devil points to the rocks and he says, take, eat. Does that sound familiar? Again, it should remind us of this first temptation of what's going on in the garden. You know, Adam declared his independence from God by turning away from the will of God and taking and eating the fruit, right? Adam and Eve, our first parents, they both do this. Jesus, the second Adam, demonstrates perfect dependence on God and he doesn't turn from the will of God and he doesn't take and eat. You know, maybe you've uh, seen Shark Week or you watch Shark Week. We've watched Shark Week before. We're just mesmerized by sharks. Family or a family that just loves watching sharks. And... Uh, the sharks are just constantly moving, constantly moving, constantly moving. They just never stop. They just don't stop and rest. They're just constantly moving. And there's a, a philosopher, uh, the, the, the professor of philosophy at uh, Calvin College. His name is James K. Smith. And he uses a term to describe the human existence. He calls us existential sharks. We just got to keep moving. We got to keep moving. We got to keep moving. We just... There is a insatiable hunger. He, you know, he he argues in contrast to um, to Rene Descartes, who said, "I think, therefore, but I think, therefore, I am," and sort of uh, put forward a philosophy of the human existence being of the intellect. Uh, we are thinking beings. Uh, what what Smith says in contrast in, in argument against Descartes is he says, "So I don't know that we're thinking beings. I think we are." We are loving beings, and we go where we love. And we are like these existential sharks that are just moved by appetite. And this, of course, is sort of a, a, a picture of what's rumbling on underneath temptation. In First John chapter 2, um, making use of reflecting back on the temptations of Christ, the temptations of man, uh, the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, this is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever loves the will of God abides forever. And this image of the, the, the lust of the flesh, we hear lust and we think 50 shades of gray and sex. And of course, lust can pertain to that. But lust is just an innate desire. It's like your mind and your heart are on repeat. It's a playlist that won't stop. You can't get it to stop. It's just constantly moving. And because this is sort of rumbling on, John says, don't love the ways of the world. In other words, he's not talking about the beauty of the world or the beauty of what it means to be uh, human that glorifies God or the beauty of nature, which God uh, created. He's not saying don't love the beautiful things of the world. He's saying don't love the cosmos. Don't love the order of things. Don't order your life like everybody else and live like an existential shark to sort of in, uh, you know, involuntarily giving in to the to the affections and the appetites. So Jesus, of course, uh, uh, overcomes this temptation to just give in and use his power for his own self-gratification. Uh, and so um, as we consider this, you know, whether it's a, a substance or it's sex or it's a, the next shiny thing or it's a relationship or it's the next accolade of accomplishment, I mean, anything that we be, believe is going to end the rumbling 
anything that convinces us, you know, in that moment that God is not enough for us, uh, this is where uh, temptation rears its ugly head. The temptation of Christ at the core and the temptation for you and I at the core is that God is not enough. And so notice, as I mentioned, here as Jesus is responding to the devil, as it relates to the things rumbling inside him, notice there's a dark use of power and a divine use of power. The dark use of power is I will use my power to gratify myself, but the divine use of power is I will, I will not exalt myself, I will not gratify myself, my life is for others. And so Jesus considers the use of power to gratify himself a dead end. I think this teaches us some profound things about Jesus, about his commitment to you and I, his love, his grace. It's unfathomable. Like I said, you and I are not called to uh, repeat this. We can't repeat it. We can't emulate it. That bar is too high. But what we are called to do is to begin to live into congruence with this, is to desire this, is to, is to look at his, his love, his grace, his holiness and say, that actually does describe who I was created to be. I know there's times where I fail to be that person, but that is who I was created to be. And therefore, by his love and grace, I desire this. I endeavor to, to uh, not just give in to the temptation and live in indifference. So as we uh, move on to the third thing, we consider that, you know, united to Christ, his mission and his call was to give himself, to prefer, to prefer himself and to serve himself. And so united to Christ now, our call of course, is to prefer and to love and to serve the people that are sitting in the seats around us here in this community, to be a caring and loving church, to get outside of ourselves, to be ministers, and to, to bring the love and the grace of Christ on campus, to our vocations, to the office on Monday, to live curved out, not with the proclivity to be constantly curved in. Final thing is, we consider is the third question of how is God's grace for temptation actually provided? So Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 8. And this is when the people of God were in the wilderness and they were tempted to return to slavery in Egypt. Because they're like, well, we had food there. It was better there. The past was better than the present. And they were tempted to return to a life of death and slavery without God in their past. Because their hunger was breaking through. And they're like, we're brought to a breaking point because of the pain of the present. I think we can identify with that the pain of the present making us believe that it'd be better without god at all because he doesn't seem to be uh taking care of things the way that we see he should be if we were to put him on trial it's tempting and so even though the children of god were not faithful god was faithful and he fed them with bread they'll remember remember this and he keeps them alive for 40 years he's providing bread And Jesus resists this temptation and he quotes this text about God providing providing bread. We will not live uh, uh, on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. He's perfectly faithful and he's, he's ultimately offered himself to you and I, to our hungering souls, as bread. You know, if that's, that's uh, poetic and metaphorical, but let's just think about it. Today, bread is optional, right? You go to the restaurant again, it's like, hey, would you like some bread? Yes, no. At home, we can have bread, yes, no. In the ancient world, bread was like, this is like a life and death situation. Do we have bread? Right? They weren't eating meat every day. Like, we eat meat, like, you know, we don't even think about it now or whatever. Uh, you know, they're, they're living off the land. So there's vegetables and, and there's occasional meat. But, I mean, they're, they're, 
they're making bread. Bread is life and death. So Jesus presents himself to you and I, not to think of it as like this occasional sort of thing. It's like, oh, if I get around to it, maybe worship on Sunday could possibly be a priority in my life and gather it. No, this is what God has given as your bread. So you can relate to all of God's means of grace like, nah, you know, I'm good, no thanks, maybe. Uh, it's not, Jesus isn't like optional bread for the table. This is life, life and death. Life and death to our souls, to the flourishing of our souls, to the health of our hearts and our minds. That even as the world is crumbling all around us, that there could be a strength and a stability there. He is that. He presents himself as that. And so Jesus is not simply quoting the word of God. So what I'm, I'm not going to say to you, here's how you overtempt temptation. You memorize the Bible verses and then you say them to yourselves. That's true and good, but that's not enough. Because Jesus is not just memorized scripture and quoting scripture. He loves the Father. He's so amazed at the love of the Father, the grace of the Father, the mercy of the Father, who's moved for thousands of years. So when he is quoting the scripture, it's not just a mere sort of academic quoting of a precept. It's flowing from a heart of love for the person. So, should you and I read the scriptures and memorize the scriptures and ingest the scriptures and quote the scriptures? Yes. But flowing from and building into this love of the Father, the person behind the principles. And this is what has caused Jesus to live with this dependence on God. This is part of how God begins to build in you and I, forge in us the character and the strength to overcome Temptation, not by just merely trying harder, but by loving different things. You know, God's grace covers our failure for every past temptation completely. And God's grace is reforming you and I to resist future temptation slowly, increasingly. How does he do that? I'll give you a, 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 a modern day parable. Let's stick with this theme of food and hunger and appetite. Here's the parable. Sometimes when women get pregnant... Certain foods and smells repulse them. Many of you ladies may have experienced that. It's like you used to like this food, but now something's growing inside you, and the smell of it makes you sick. Other times, you'll hear stories of women who get pregnant, and they start to crave and desire different things. This is how God empowers you and I to overcome temptation. We're united to him by the power of his spirit and by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Love for him is growing inside us. New loves are growing inside us. New desires are growing inside us. You know, I, I really like mushrooms, which for some of you is repulsive. I like mushroom soup, which for some of you is like even more repulsive. And I used to have mushroom soup at the house. And then, and then uh, Susan one day when she was pregnant was like, Get that away from me, Satan. Because the appetites just absolutely change. It can be aggressive about it. Something new. This is what the Holy Spirit does inside of you and I. This is how he strengthens us. There's new loves that are formed. It's by the power of his grace. It's the profound loves. You and I are going to struggle with temptation for forever. And the struggle is good. Because the struggle is actually evidence. The struggle is evidence of the indwelling power of God. Because if the Holy Spirit were not there, there would be no struggle. Because whatever you're up to would just seem very normal and completely fine to you. 
But the struggle itself is evidence that God is doing something deep in your heart and in your mind. Thomas Chalmers was a theologian in the late 1700s, and he said this, It's seldom that any of, if any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. The heart must have something to cling to, and never by its own voluntary consent will it derude itself by its attachments. Therefore, the superior affection for God through the free gospel of Christ is necessary to displace worldly affections. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. So the devil tempts Jesus and he says, take and eat. And Jesus did not take and eat. And in a shocking, redemptive turn of events, Jesus has made for us the reminder of his grace for our sin at the Lord's table where he invites us to take and eat. Taking and eating were the very actions that brought mankind's damnation in the garden are now the actions, taking and eating, that remind us of our redemption. And as we take and eat at the Lord's table, God's grace reorients our appetites. The son overcame the temptation because he turned to his father perfectly. You and I, we fall into temptation because we turn to our heavenly father inconsistently. But by God's grace, our failure and temptation is covered completely. And he is now reforming us to resist temptation. And he will do this increasingly. Let's come now to the Lord's table and celebrate our rescue and be empowered for renewal. Amen.